The Bible reading today comes from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 30. If you have a church Bible, black church Bible, it's on page 1546. And it's also up on the screen. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, You'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflets but let's pray. Father, please, as we come to this really, really important moment uh, before Jesus dies, open our eyes to see that which we haven't seen. or We think we have, but we haven't. Or maybe we saw once, but we've forgotten. M- please impress on us uh, personally the whole importance of Jesus' death. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, today, we begin our journey into Easter And we take our cue from Jesus himself, 
Matthew 26, verse 2, he says, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And we say, of course we know that. Jesus gets crucified. That's what Easter is about. It's solemn. It's important. We know this. And very quickly, the I know what's about to happen switch gets flicked and we listen, but we don't really listen. Stop! Jesus has delivered a bombshell. Did you hear it? Last week, Clayton at Mount Barker delivered a bombshell. I'm leaving. Jesus delivers a bombshell. The Passover was two days away. That was the massive feast of celebration, commemorating God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt through massive outpouring of judgment, but salvation with it. It's the moment when... Israel became God's people and God became their God. And thereafter, every year, there was an annual feast of celebration. But Jesus says, that will be the day that he's going to be handed over to be crucified. Now, that would have been a bombshell for the disciples. And maybe we think, we know this, and we turn off. Stop! The bombshell Jesus delivers lands in our world, not just theirs. Because we read that Jesus made these announcements after Jesus had finished saying all these things. And those words are not redundant. They're there for a purpose. And we say, what things? And then we flick back to chapters 24 and 25 and we see everything in that whole stretch where Jesus talks about what will happen at the end, at the end of time, the day of judgment, culminating in the coming of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the angels with him and he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and then he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and he'll, the sheep will separate onto his right, the goats onto his left. Those on his right will go to eternal life and those on his left, eternal punishment. And we think, well, in our, our complicated minds, I would have preferred there to be more shades of grey, thank you very much, because when I look at people, you know, there are different levels of deservingness and, you know, when you weigh people's lives in the balance, it's not so clear-cut. And yet Jesus, the Son of Man, he says, actually, on that day, it will be clear-cut. There'll be two options, right or left, eternal life, eternal punishment. My goodness. And he, the Son of Man, is going to decide this for everyone. That is, there is no one more powerful in the universe than he who is on the throne, the Son of Man. He's the ultimate judge of every human being since the beginning of time to the end. And what he says will affect everyone's eternal destiny, the judgment he makes, including mine, including yours. You can't get someone in the universe more powerful with more authority than he and now Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. What? Jesus doesn't just say, oh, by the way, I, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, who grew up with uh, Joseph and Mary and all the disciples you know, some of whom you're here, you're my brother's. I will be handed over to be crucified. No, he's very specific about the term he uses in reference to himself. The Son of Man will be crucified. What? What does he want us to get? 
Now, usually our explanations of why Jesus died go like this. He was the sinless son of God. And therefore, when he went to the cross, he's able to pay for all of our sins because he didn't deserve punishment. We did. He subs in for us and, and therefore we're forgiven. That is true. But here, in the way he explains it, that's not the category he uses. He's stretching us. He's causing us to think deeper than we've thought before. Why does it matter that the judge of all the world is handed over to be crucified at the Passover feast? Now, if you can't answer that, there's more to Easter to understand than you realise. More that Jesus wants you to understand. And to help us understand, before the whole machinery of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion winds into gear and gets going, which it will, because with Jesus' announcement, scene change, separate screen coming up now, the countdown has begun, the wheels are in motion, in a separate screenshot, the chief priests and Jewish elders, they're meet, meeting secretly to scheme about how to arrest Jesus. Jesus announces it, the prophet, his words carry authority, it's, about, it's happening right now real time, somewhere else in Jerusalem. So the cogs of crucifixion have now slowly begun to turn, but before Jesus gets seemingly carried along as a passive guy, even though he's in control, what he does is he pauses now, and in this chapter he gives two personal encounters which speak to us, two meals, and both of which, they're meant to be taken together. They both describe Jesus reclining at the table. People didn't sit up at table and chairs. There was a low platform and people would kind of recline and, you know, with their legs spreading out and sort of eating um, with their head towards the table. Both very intimate settings, very personal. And in both of these settings, Jesus says the words, I tell you the truth. And these are words of personal significance for us, things that we normally wouldn't believe. Because why else would you preface what you're about to say with the words, I tell you the truth, except that what you're about to say is something most people wouldn't normally believe. You know, if I said, tomorrow there is going to be a firestorm which is going to rip through the hills, well, you wouldn't believe me. But if I said, no, 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 I tell you the truth, tomorrow there'll be a firestorm that will rip through the hills. And if I had the authority of Jesus, then you'd, you'd sit up and take note to that which you wouldn't normally believe. Here, Jesus speaks to us in these intimate personal settings of things we wouldn't ordinarily believe, but which we need to grasp to make sense of Easter. Ready? Okay. The first meal was the one where Jesus was anointed with perfume. The second, the Passover meal. Both have to do with his body. In the first, he says, she poured perfume on my body. In the second, he says, this is my body. Both speak to us something about Jesus' body. So the first encounter, personal encounter with the perfume, it happens at the house of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon except that he's a leper, <laughs> presumably a healed leper. Because other people are there in the house, and this would have been forbidden otherwise. There's the woman, and there's the disciples, there's Jesus. If he has been healed, which we've got every reason to think that he has, this is a picture of salvation, isn't it? That is, it's not just healing, but restoration of a whole person. He's not just healed from his leprosy, 
He's in social fellowship with people again and he's restored with God because Jesus is in his midst and he's having fellowship with God and with people. This is a picture of resurrection life, really, when you think about it, because what will we be doing in heaven? We'll be being with one another, with God, with Jesus, in heaven, sharing a meal together. It's a wonderful picture. Okay, he's hosting the meal and everyone's reclining at the table and then a woman comes in and she's not named. And this is deliberate. If she was named, we'd venerate her because of what she did. But being unnamed, the focus is entirely on her action and what we get from her action. And this woman comes in and she brings an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now, I bought Narelle some perfume once once. Where is it? Ah, here. Here's the bottle. How many years ago did I buy this for you? 25? Possibly. <laughs> All right. There's still a bit left. There you go. Um, that cost a bit. But nowhere near as much as this one. And I love you, sweetie, but I'm not spending a year's wages on perfume for you. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but there you go. Okay. <clears throat> uh, this perfume was worth more than a year's wages. Now, the average wage in Australia, annual wage, is, what, $70,000, so the Bureau of Statistics tells us. What, 80 grand worth of perfume? My goodness. This woman's perfume is in an, in an alabaster flask. I wonder if you've ever seen an alabaster flask. I have. I was in the British Museum for one day, and I was walking along, and there was one from the first century. I went, oh, a first century perfume bottle from the alaba you know, alabaster flask from the first century. My goodness, my goodness. Took a photo, can't find it. It's buried with the tens of thousands of photos I've got. And, um, but I remember, it was about this big. It, it was kind of op um, creamy in colour. It was thin um, and it had intricate sort of patterns and carvings on it. But the really interesting thing about it was that it didn't have a cork stopper. It was whole and sealed. So to get into it, you had to break the whole thing uh, to get the perfume. Now, when we use perfume, when Narelle uses this perfume, one or two squirts, right? That's enough, you know, maybe three if you're feeling la-la. So there you go. So, <laughs> Sorry, Narelle, that just came out. Um, <laughs> all right, don't depart from the script. There you go. So, um, But this woman, this woman, she cracks the flask. And she pours all the perfume, what, $80,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' head. It is an extravagant, literal outpouring of expenditure on Jesus. And knowing the dollar terms of what's just been poured out, if you were there, if I were there, what would we have thought? Um, that's a bit over the top. What a waste. It's exactly what the disciples think. Couldn't the money have been better spent providing for the poor? It wasn't just Judas who was thinking this. All the disciples were thinking about this regarding this woman. And presumably they gave voice to it because at that point, Jesus, who cared for the poor, defends this woman. He says, why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. And no one could deny that. You know, blind Freddy couldn't have missed seeing it because the smell would have been filling the room. But what made this beautiful thing so right was that, Jesus, was that Jesus said that her pouring perfume on his body was preparing his body for burial. 
She anointed Jesus. Now, who else gets anointed in the Bible? Kings. Who by? Prophets. Is she a prophet? Jesus says she's a prophet because she says that action, that which she did, points forward to something greater to come. She might not have realized that she was being a prophet, but her anointing of Jesus um, pointed beyond itself to Jesus' burial. Uh, on Tuesday morning, Sterling Chibos, our men's group, were thinking about this perfume. Men don't normally think about perfume at 7am, but we were. Sensitive New Age guys. Um, it occurred to us that the perfume back then lasted longer because it was oil-based, not water-based. And there's a very good chance that the fragrance was therefore still with him on the cross. That hadn't occurred to me before. Possibly it still lingered even when he was being buried. Either way, Jesus says that this anointing of his body with perfume was preparing his body for burial. And then Jesus says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we think, well, isn't that nice? It's kind of quaint. And then I hadn't really thought much about it beyond that. Except I must, because when Jesus says this, he says, truly I tell you, it's one of those important sayings. He wants us to see something we're not seeing. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel, what gospel? Is it Jesus' death and resurrection? It isn't. Because the focus is only on his burial. Wherever this gospel, gospel? You know what a gospel is, don't you? It's, it wasn't a religious word, it was a secular word. It went good news, not good news, oh, I found a car park, good news, my footy team won. Um, Good news that was monumental news that would change the life of thousands and thousands and thousands of people forever. It was news like um, our king with his armies has just defeated um, the rival nation which has been for generations our enemy. Uh, a gospel was a new king has been born and that being heralded because the old king was a tyrant. There's a new era, the dawning of a new age. So gospel was good news that changed the world. He says, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what? We think the news of the death of the Son of Man is good news for the world? This is going to be shared throughout the world? Now Jesus draws this big circle around this woman and he says, wherever this gospel is preached, what she has been, which she has done will be told in memory of her. Why does he draw attention to what she has done? What did she get that no one else got? Because all of us would have thought, you're being extravagant. This is a waste of money. What did she get? It's that he was worth it. He's so much more precious than what we realise, isn't he? Isn't that what she understood? She willingly gave everything, you know, all her money. She spent it on perfume and just poured it out in one go. Imagine that. Why would you do that except to think, 
He is so worth it. No one else saw this. Everyone thought it was an extravagant waste. This woman saw differently. We don't know whether he'd healed her or whether he'd forgiven her or whether he'd welcomed her, treated her kindly when everyone else had dismissed her. Whatever her motivation, and it's significant, we're not told what her motivation was. What she saw and what Jesus now wants us to see is that he is of much greater worth than we naturally think and that his death, therefore, will be of much greater worth than what we naturally think. This woman gets it right. And now we see through her eyes because Jesus has opened our eyes. And her extravagant indulgence that she lavishes on Jesus is directly contrasted now with Judas and his miserly greediness. In verse 14, Judas agrees to hand Jesus over to the Jews for 30 pieces of silver. This woman spares no thought about what she can spend on Jesus. All Judas can think of is how much he can get from Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a common slave back then. That's the price, the value that Judas puts on Jesus. The price of a common slave. What a contrast to what the woman thinks. And that means that what is about to happen because of what Judas does is outrageous. It's an abomination. Well, next Jesus sends his disciples to make preparations for the Passover, a second meal. He tells them where to go, who to speak to, all of which points to advanced preparation on the part of Jesus. And therefore, the importance of this meal for Jesus when he meets with his disciples. It's not just an ordinary meal. He's going to extra lengths for this because it matters, this meal. Now, the countdown timer has begun ticking. It began ticking in verse 2 when Jesus said, the Passover is two, day, two days away and then the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified. Right? Click. Tick, 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 tick. The countdown timer has now begun. It's two days away. Now it's one. Now it's evening of the second day. And now the Passover is upon them. The countdown clock is nearing zero. When evening comes, Jesus is reclining at the table with the twelve. This is Jesus' last meal. And if the first personal meal made us realise that Jesus is more precious than we would naturally think, the second personal meal opens our eyes again. Because verse 21, while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now what's he want us to see? We already know that Judas knows that he's the betrayer. We can guess that Jesus knows that Judas is the betrayer. We know what the disciples don't know. <laughs> so here is another bomb for them. Not so much a bomb for us because we know that this is going to happen. But for them, none of them would have believed it. But Jesus presses the point, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And one after one, they begin to say, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Even Judas, the deceiver, said this, deceiver. But what are we meant to understand from Jesus' truly I tell you words? Well, in Jesus' words, he 
speaks out the truth that the sin that would lead him to dying on a cross wasn't the minimal sort of way we conceive of sin. You know, sometimes you think, what was the big deal? It's just breaking of a law. It's just a little transgression. What's the big deal that you need someone to die on a cross to get rid of that sin? Ah, that's to think wrongly. Here, Jesus opens our eyes and he helps us to see that the sin that led him to death wasn't the breaking of a law. It was relational. It was the personal betrayal of a friend who had called him Lord. Now, I have to be really careful to generalising from Judas to ourselves because in one sense he was unique. Jesus said the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, that is being prophesied, it's part of God's sovereign plan, it's predestined. Even the price of 30 silver coins was prophesied in Scripture, Zechariah 11 verse 12, it's part of the plan. In that sense, Judas was used by God uniquely as a part of his plan well, if it's all part of a plan, does that mean that Judas is innocent? No, because Jesus then says, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he hadn't been born because he's going to be punished eternally for his part in the divine plan, which he consciously played out with his free will. This raises a big question about God's sovereignty and free will, and it's not the place to expand on it, except to say... Both are true. We both hold them together in Scripture because the Bible does without embarrassment. I can talk to you later about this if you want. But in one sense, Judas is unique. But we know that in God's wider plan, Jesus didn't die just because of Judas's sin, did he? Because there was a wider plan. He went to the cross bearing our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions. And what Judas's sin opens our eyes to and what Jesus said about Judas's sin opens our eyes to is that it's personal. It's not trivial. It's not minor. It's as horrible as one friend betraying another friend who should be the Lord. And then you realise, well, we've done it, haven't we? On one day being thankful to Jesus for his mercy and kindness, then on the next day knowing full well what he wants of us, kind of ignoring that and going directly against him, knowing that that's the sin actually which he has to die for. Isn't that betraying a friend? Jesus, of course, knew all this was the reason he was going to the cross and yet he made preparations for this meal to impress on his disciples another greater truth. He breaks the bread and he passes the cup. Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And now comes the third home truth, which we'd not naturally believe. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of this vine until, from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. What's he saying here? Yes, he's saying he's about to enter his father's kingdom. He's going to die. And the moment when he's handed over is no longer two days nor one, but now the countdown timer is closer. Now it's before his next drink. But it's more than that, isn't it? What he said in verse 29. There's hope. 
My next drink will be with you in the Father's kingdom. What's this drink? Is it his drink in heaven? Is that when he'll next have a drink? Is he talking about the wedding supper of the Lamb? When was his next drink? He was offered a drink on the cross, wasn't he? But he didn't take it. He tasted it, but he didn't take it. When was his next drink? Now, I've checked. There's no explicit reference to it. So, I might be wrong. But it stands to reason that if he met with his disciples and ate with them, which we know he did, he also had a drink. The meal with his disciples in his resurrection appearances, that's his next drink. And if that's true, what he's saying here is that he has opened up the kingdom of heaven to his disciples by his death. And he says, my, my next drink that I drink will be with you in my Father's kingdom. That means for them, they don't have to die before they enter the Father's kingdom. They don't have to wait till the day of resurrection before they enter the Father's kingdom. Jesus, through his death, he's going to crack open the doors of the kingdom. This is good news for the disciples. This is Easter hope, isn't it? This is the good news. Knowing God as Father, friendship with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, forgiveness of sins, entrance to the kingdom. On Easter Sunday, it all happened. The journey Jesus has taken on began with a shock, the bomb that he dropped. But he's moved from the beginning to the end of the chapter, from shock through to hope. How does he do it? This is my body given for you. In breaking the bread, he points us to his body, which would be broken for us on the cross. By doing it in the context of a meal and by breaking bread and saying, this is my body, bread which the disciples would eat, the significance is that each of us must receive what Jesus did for us and make it our own, just like you receive bread and when you eat it, you make it your own. And truly, he tells us the horror of that sacrifice was determined by the horror of the sin that he carried. Sin is not trivial, it's relational betrayal of a friend who is Lord. And because it's so horrific, he opens our eyes. Truly, he opens our eyes. He could deliver us through the one sacrifice because his life was more precious than what we would naturally understand. His life was more valuable than what we would naturally see, though the woman saw it. And therefore, his death for burial, more valuable than any other death or burial. Because who is it who died? The judge of the end of time, the Son of Man. You see, who is going to condemn us if the one who died for us is the judge at the end of time? There is no one more powerful with more authority who has the last say than he. No final judge that Satan can appeal to, no higher court. His word counts. 
And He is the one who has died for us. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it the one who condemns? Who's the final judge? It's Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and who is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. Do you see what this means? Some of us here will say we believe in Jesus and we do, but we'll live in fear of the day of judgment. This low-level anxiety which we carry all the time. We hear the parable of the sheep and the goats and we think, am I going to go to Jesus' left? Am I going to be a goat sent away to eternal punishment? The good news of Easter is that the disciples didn't have to wait until the day of judgment before they found out which way Jesus would send them, left or right. Nor did they have to wait until they died. They only had to wait until Jesus rose from the dead, when he ate with them and drank with them in his Father's kingdom. A picture of resurrection life. What a wonderful hope the death of Jesus gives. You say, I believe in Jesus, but I still have this fear. To have a sure hope, you need to feel the shock that the one crucified on that Passover for your deliverance was the end-time Son of Man, whose life and therefore death was, was of infinite value. And then what you have to do is receive in faith the body broken for you, his blood shed for you. In a moment after this next song, there'll be a chance to come down the front and to receive again Christ in faith, not because he's in the bread. <laughs> it's a remembrance of him. But to take that bread and take the cup and to say with thanksgiving in your heart, he died for me. The precious son of man, or more value than I could realize, he died for me so that I can be in the Father's kingdom now without fear, with full assurance of sins completely forgiven. What a precious thing Jesus paused and had those two meals so that we could understand personally the truth about Easter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, more precious than we can know. And what a comfort that the one who will ultimately be our judge is he who died for us. And thank you that there can be fellowship with you in your kingdom right now for all who come to him in faith and receive his body, his blood, broken, shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.